Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and RobCartledgeMinistries.com. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. She wrote something, uh, I won't read the whole letter, I'm just going to read the first part and I'm sure Tammy won't mind. She said, I just wanted to let you know how much you're not alone, feeling like your prayers are falling flat at your side or falling to the ground, and as though you're slugging through the muck and the mire and like you're not being hurt. So many of us are going through this right now. Hey, how's it going? So many of us are going, are going through this very thing right now, that their prayers are feeling like we're not being heard in, in the world today. There's many Christians around. So I, I was amazed that she said that because um, in my prayer time, I feel like I'm coming up against the brick wall and I, I'm not getting through. And she said it's happening on a worldwide basis from everyone that she knows. And I've heard other people say the same things to me as well, that their prayers feel like they're falling on deaf ears. And we know that's not true, but you get that sense. So many of us are going through this right now. The Lord showed me the other night that we are all going through this because Satan knows that revival is getting ready to explode on the scene. There's a sense worldwide, a sense that revival is coming and the last great move of God is soon soon to begin. And the last great move, meaning the last outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to, uh, it's like mankind's uh, last great chance to repent. And after that, destruction. And I've, I've wrote about that in my book as well. Uh, I can't remember which one. It could have been taken up across or God's heart cry. But, uh, so get yourselves ready. Start preparing your hearts because a revival is coming. And when that revival hits, when it hits Adelaide, there's not going to be room enough in any church that preaches the truth, by the way, for the amount of people that are going to come to know Jesus. But it's going to bring with it, there's going to be a following, a persecution that's going to come upon the church uh, at that time because Satan is going to be furious that, that God has empowered the church like that of the early uh, apostles back in the book of Acts. So when this happens, be ready because that's when we're going to have to stand up and, you know, uh, our actions are going to have to follow our words in a sense. We're going to have to be the men that we always claim to be, prepared to lay down our life for Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know the exact timing of this, uh, but all I can say is there's something moving in the heavenlies. So if you're praying in the morning and you're feeling like you're getting nowhere, and I know, Nick, you told me that's how you feel, and it's exactly how I feel, don't let that be a reason to stop doing it. Just keep pressing in. Keep pushing for it through because it's going to come. Uh, uh, we're going to see something take place as a result of our commitment to that. That is going to astound us in the days to come. All right, just turn in your Bibles to Galatians two twenty, if you could. 
Galatians 2.20. Very important scripture. This is part two of Get on the Cross. Part one's online, and I've had a few good responses from it. Pray for more responses. Pray for that more people get sent to the videos and, and to hear these videos because they're desperately needed to be heard by uh, Christians worldwide. I believe anyway. So this is Get on the Cross, part two. Galatians 2.20, and it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he lives by faith in the Son of God. And uh, this is a really important scripture. You know why? Because hardly anyone really knows what it means. Hardly anyone can live that out and can follow in the steps of Paul and be like that. People read it and they go, yeah, it's nice. It sounds poetic, you know. But do they really know what it means? Do they really know how to share in what Paul experienced there when he said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. What is it to no longer live? And Christ lives in me. We can say it, we can even theologically, can hear someone give a fairly good discourse on it, but are they really doing it? Are they really living that? Can we live that? Especially in this modern age where everywhere you turn, sin confronts you. You look this way, you see sin. You look that way, you see sin. You look that way, you see sin. You turn around, you see more sin. You know, we're in a sea of sin. We're up to our neck in sin if we can barely keep ourselves above it. You know, we're treading water in it or we're treading sin. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're up to our neck in sin. And now, because of that, what does the church teach? Don't worry, as long as you've made a confession of faith, you know, no matter what sin you commit now, if you live in this sin for the rest of your life, you're still going to get saved. But is that the truth or is that a compromise? And I think it's an absolute compromise because the Bible says no such thing. The Bible says no such thing. Even though I'll have, you know, 95 out of 100 Christians will argue with me to the end on that point. I'll say, well, if you can change the words of the Bible, I'll listen to you. But if you can't change the words of the Bible, I'm not going to listen to you. You know, and that's what it boils down to. So that's a very, very powerful scripture. Now, I'm just going to go through a little bit of what we talked about in part one. Do you remember I brought up Wesley's, John Wesley's doctrine of what he called true religion? There's been this abandonment of the word religion in the 20th century. There's been this vendetta against the word religion, even though the Bible uses the word religion, doesn't it? This is true religion, to look after the orphan and widow in their distress. You know, so the Bible refers to religion. It's not afraid to use the word religion. Now they've got this thing. It's not religion. It's relationship. Okay, that's true. It is about relationship. But isn't relationship part of true religion? Because it is relationship. That's a, that's a critical point. We must have relationship with Jesus, actually. If you don't have relationship with Jesus, you don't have Christianity. But there's a lot more to it. There's a religious, devout lifestyle that we must live that goes hand in hand with having that relationship. And if you don't have a religious, devout lifestyle, you won't be Christian either. And that relationship is just, 
in your imagination. It's not really true. So true religion, he said that there's three tenets of true religion that embrace that John Wesley used to preach. And John Wesley, if you don't know much about him, I have talked about him before, he was one of the great, or probably the greatest revivalist in history. Um, he saw uh, hundreds of thousands of people come to know Jesus. One meeting he would hold would be up to 30,000 people. Anyway, they came down to uh, three tenets of true religion. And he said this, if our doctrines cannot be applied into the life of a Christian and stir one of or all of these outcomes in one's life, then it is merely head knowledge and worthless. Actually, John Wesley didn't say that. I said that. <laughs> I thought it was a quote. It was. <laughs> so if you can't fit your doctrine into these tenets, then you haven't, you've, really misunderstood what doctrine is all about um, because doctrine is there to be applied into the life of a Christian, amen it's not there so that we can boast about how much we know the first one, and John Wesley said it's the porch of religion he called it repentance and Luke 13, 3 says but unless you repent, you too will perish without repentance you cannot be saved and I believe, as Charles Finney used to preach, that we should continually live in a life of repentance, unending consecration, sanctification to God, continually looking to God and asking God, please forgive me, please forgive me and help me to walk in this. Unless you repent, you will perish, Jesus says. The second one is faith. And John Wesley said faith was the door of religion. Ephesians 3.12 says, in him, in him, in Jesus, and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So that door we can access, we can walk into, we can enter into the most holy place. Remember on the Friday night prayer meeting, we were, we were discussing, or not discussing, praying about uh, entering into the throne room of God, the very throne room. We can enter in, we have access into the most holy place, where only the priests of the high priest of Israel could enter once a year, that that barrier that divided that wall, uh, the holy place from uh, from the rest of the temple, has been destroyed. It's been torn in two. It's been torn apart by Jesus Christ. We now can access it, but how many of us fail to access it? You have access to the throne room of God every day. Every day. As I've said before, you can walk into that throne room of God ten times a day if you choose. The high priest had to prepare himself for a long period of time to enter it once a year. And he would enter with fear and trembling. Here we have access every day and all we have to do is say, thank you Jesus, cover me in your precious blood and I can enter in. And you know what I would dare say if we found out the truth of the matter? Very few of us have ever even entered in even once in our life. Because it takes a, a, a level of persistence and travail and endurance and long-suffering and there's a, a, a level of um, devotion that you've got to get to to be able to access that point that I think very few Christians ever get to. But it's there. The door's open. 24-7, we can go in. We can go in. But are we willing to go through what it takes to go in? And it all comes down to repentance. If we are not fully repentant and fully turned from sin, we cannot access God. We cannot enter in. Amen?
And Jesus calls us to holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 said, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this, is a, this scripture to me always comes and smacks me in the face. Rob, you've got no choice. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to be holy. There's no choice. There's no second way to it. Without holiness, you won't see the Lord. So if we keep involving ourselves in the sin of you know, this world and the life that we lead and, and we keep on allowing ourselves to fall in this way and we don't repent, we don't come back, we don't realign ourselves with the Holy Spirit and, and stop grieving him, we simply won't go to heaven. And don't let anyone else deceive you. Um, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, and I believe it was Paul, but whoever wrote the book of Hebrews said very clearly, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's a scary thought. It's a scary thought in a, in a day when they call Christians, uh, many Christians are called carnal Christians because they, the pastor has given up trying to keep them holy. He just goes and twists the words of the Bible so that, okay, well, you keep sinning, but now you're, you're going to be saved regardless. It's a lie, isn't it? Who believes it's a lie? Yeah? I believe it's a lie. Holiness, however, is the religion itself. If you claim to be religious and are not holy, you're deceiving yourself. If you claim to be Christian and you're not holy, you're deceiving yourself. And you're a bad representative for Jesus. As an ambassador, people look at you and say, look at, you, look at the way you live. And you call yourself a Christian? You're corrupt. And then a lot of people judge Christianity because of you. How many people I've talked to, they judge Jesus by his representatives on earth who speak for him. Or claim to speak for him. Yeah. And this gotta be this gotta clean it up. We've got to do it just for Jesus' honor. We've got to be holy just to honor him so that he can be honored on earth. Not so people honor us and say, Look how holy you are, you're an amazing man. It's so that Jesus can be honored, amen. So that he should receive the glory. Because you know what? Without the Holy Spirit, we can't be holy. That's why the Holy Spirit is called holy. Because when he comes into a man, he makes a man holy. If we would let him. If we would work with him. If we would partner with him. Because he comes as they, he's called a paraclete. And a paraclete is a partner. He partners with us in this life. And we work together to work out our repentance. And, and our consecration, our sanctification is worked out by partnering with the Holy Spirit. If we don't partner with him... If we ignore him and all his pleas with us as, as we do things, you know, little things, big things, as we go to say something and the paraclete says, don't say it. And you say it still. Or you go to do something, he says, don't do it. And you do it still. Eventually the Holy Spirit says, I've finished with you for a while. I'm going to go away until you repent. Because I can't work with you. There's a lot of Christians walking around with no Holy Spirit. He's gone. He's departed. He's been grieved. That's a scary position for the church to be in because those Christians, without the Holy Spirit, if persecution comes upon them for the name, they're going to step away and walk away from the faith like that. We've got to make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It says be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Paul says, I die daily. And he says, I mean that, brothers. He dies to himself every single day. And we're going to be talking about that in this sermon. Now, who's heard of William Seymour? Anyone heard of William Seymour? 
William Seymour was the like a forerunner in, in a revival called the Azusa Street Revival. Just let that pass. Is that an ambulance or a police car? As an ambulance, Lord, just being with them now and then protect whoever's uh, maybe hurt in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so William Seymour was an incredible uh, forerunner of the Azusa Street Revival. It's the sort of revival you should look into. Um, Bill sent me a video on it. Uh, I've read about it in the past, but it was a really good video. Just uh, about a 45-minute documentary um, goes into some of the uh, uh, fruit of the Azusa Street. It was a revival that ran uh, for four or five years, three services a day, seven days a week. And uh, there was the most amazing sense of the presence of God during the Azusa Street Revival. And in, in the outcome of that is something like 600,000 uh, Christians or churches or ch- Christians and churches have been affected through the uh, ministry that started at the Azusa Street. But he taught about the three works of the Holy Spirit. And I bring this up because it's very similar to what um, John Wesley said about true religion. The three works of the Holy Spirit, he said, are salvation. And when you get saved, and of course, you only get saved through repentance. You then go through a period of sanctification. So that sanctification is what John Wesley called holiness, true religion. And that sanctification is like repentance and it's also living it out and being holy and resisting the temptations of of the sin nature and all those sorts of things. So sanctification is an important work and it's critical. It was as it was in the aspect of being sanctified that we will seriously seek hard after God. Because when you, you choose to live a holy life, you're going to seek God like never before. Because when we start living in holiness, as we are called to in the Bible we realise that through being sanctified, we will receive the power baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, what we lack in this day in the church, and I'll say the church at large, is people baptised, truly baptised with the power of the Holy Spirit. They've confused being born again, which I would consider the breath of the Spirit of, of Jesus, when Jesus breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. This was after he was resurrected, but before he ascended, so it was before Pentecost, he breathed on them. And you know what happened? They possessed the Holy Spirit. A believer possesses the Holy Spirit when they first get saved. But they're not baptised with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the difference is, is a believer possesses the Holy Spirit when they're first saved, but when you get baptised with the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit possesses you. Can you see the difference? It's when the Holy Spirit, you yield and say, okay, all of me. And the Holy Spirit goes, okay, I can use this man now. And then he possesses you. And it's the equivalent. When Jesus said to Peter, when you were young, uh, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted to go. But when you are old, someone else is going to dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. What he was referring to was when he would be baptised. So he, he was saying that to a Peter who was saved, who did possess the Holy Spirit. But he said, when you are older, the Holy Spirit is going to lead you where you may not want to go, but you're going to go anyway, because he will possess you. So what we've got to be offering ourselves up to God and saying, God, possess me. And then God will say, well, I can't yet. And you'll say, why? 
It says because of sin. The Holy Spirit cannot put, put himself upon a man who is still filled with sin. He will be in the heart of the person and stirring them to want to change, but for him to possess you and completely grab you and say, okay, now I want to use you with power, you must be fully yielded to him and living a holy and righteous life. You must live a sanctified life in Jesus Christ. And then you get received the baptism. Now, if anyone misunderstands my theology, I've written an entire book about that one subject. And it's comprehensive. It goes through all the scriptures. Uh, it makes it very, very clear. The book is called So You Think You're Baptized with the Holy Spirit. So see if you can, if you have any qualms with it or don't understand it, just pick up the book, read it, and read it from cover to cover and read it carefully because it's the most misunderstood doctrine in Christianity today. And due to its misunderstanding, most Christians don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. As Leonard Ravenhill said, he said, we have 75 million Christians in America who claim to be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said, yet we're the rottenest nation on earth. I predict this, just 12 Christians in America, totally baptized, empowered, possessed by the Holy Spirit will turn America upside down. Just 12. Same for Australia. 12, 12 ministers or anyone, 12 people, 12 Christians, baptised in the power of the Holy Spirit will turn Australia upside down. Because I believe that if God possesses a man, God's going to do incredible things we won't be able to, we won't believe. But the issue is we claim to have something we don't have, therefore we miss out on what he really has for us. Because who prays for something they think they already have? No. If you think you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and yet you don't have power with God and you don't have power with men, if your words don't bring conviction into people's hearts, if you, don't, if you pray for someone and they don't get healed when you pray, you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. I believe God said you will receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, you'll be you know, a good Christian when you receive the Holy Spirit. He said, you'll receive power. Who wants power with God? Absolutely. Who wouldn't want power with God and power with man? Who wouldn't want to have that anointing to be able to, you know, go up to, walk into a hospital, literally. I believe if the Apostle Paul walked into Adelaide now and he walked into a hospital, he would walk up to every sick person there and he would heal them by the power of God. Why hasn't any other Christian in Australia ever done that? Because I believe we have a misunderstanding of what the baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit is. And I believe that is what God's going to do in this last great move of God. He is going to empower his people, or certain people, because even in the book of Acts, you'll find this, and I'll, I'll, I can't remember exactly which chapter, could it be chapter 5 or something? The Christians, there was a lady who, who had died, and the Christians in that area... They said, we hear Peter's here. If Peter was here, he would, he, he would raise that person from the dead by, by prayer. So they got, brought Peter in and Peter came in. And Peter prayed for that person. That, uh, I can't remember what her name was now, but prayed for that person and she got up. Why couldn't the other, other Christians do that same thing? 
I'm not claiming that everyone in Australia is not baptised in the Holy Spirit, but what I'm saying is, if we have been baptised in the Holy Spirit, we're no longer seeing any power, we need to get baptised again. Charles Finney used to talk about going through seasons of baptisms where he, he would realise, I'm, I'm losing my power. So he'd go and spend a month praying and fasting to God. There's a certain man, I remember Leonard Ravenhall was talking about that once a year he would go to a certain place where he had first been baptised with the Holy Spirit and every year he'd go back to that same place and spend 40 days there fasting and praying until he received that power again. Every year he did that until the day he died. But most Christians today are content to live powerless Christian lives, prayerless Christian lives, sinful Christian lives, forgetting the fundamentals of what the early church lived by. And I think this is a dilemma. I think the church is really in a, in a state, and no wonder I'm having a hard time in prayer. We've got to wake up. We've got to snap out of whatever has been uh, holding us down and making us think that everything's fine at the moment. Because no kidding, Jesus is coming. And, and I'm going to say it until the day I die. Jesus is going to return and let him not find you straying. Let him find you passionate for him. Let him find you living for him with all your heart. Let him find you in deep prayer. Let him find you in a cave somewhere, praying like there's no tomorrow, literally thinking there's no tomorrow, so I'm praying like it's the last day on earth. Let him find you seeking the gifts of the Spirit. Let him find you seeking that power, baptism, and the power to move men to receive salvation. Because we live in, a, in an area right now where most people don't believe and those that do believe are so wishy-washy and flimsy in their faith, it's like they don't believe. And we're in a desperate situation. And it's not breaking our hearts. We know of people that die. And we cry, yeah, maybe we cry because they're gone. But do we cry because their souls are going to hell? Do we even believe in hell anymore? Do we even care that just about everybody we know is going to hell because of their confession and what they believe in their heart? Dude, does that put you on your knees and make you weep while you pray? This is an issue. This is an issue so serious. In churches, there's churches like this, this small, all over the place, not growing because we're not praying. We're not praying as we should. We prayed Friday night, amen. Who felt we had a breakthrough? Who felt there was something stirred in the heavens? I did. We need more of that because we're going to build momentum. We're going to get somewhere with doing that sort of stuff. We do enough of that. History provides many examples of that type of prayer. If, you're a, uh, if you study a historic revival, you'll find that there was always groups that took it on themselves to start to pray. The Duncan Campbell revival wasn't a Duncan Campbell revival, it's a Scottish Hebrides revival. He was called in. Started with two old women. And then a few pastors got together and, and, and key people in the church. And they started to pray, and then the breakthrough came. 
But we've got to keep going with it. We've got to keep going with it. We've got to keep pushing. We've got to keep getting to those Wednesday night prayer meetings. We've got to, we've got to shake heaven for an, for an answer. And we've got to get up in the morning. We've got to get, get on our knees in the evening. And we've got to find a moment in the day. And we've got to pray. Because all I'm, I'm, I'm feeling an urgency. Jesus is coming. And persecution is going to precede his coming. But a revival is going to precede that. And the intensity and the power of that revival is going to be determined by how his people pray. And how empowered his people get. Amen. Don't let the size of this church uh, worry us or make us think that, okay, God's not speaking here. Because I know God's speaking here. You know, how do you think Noah felt? Entered the ark, just him, his wife, three children, their wives. He's going, oh, it's not many of us. You know, and then the rains came, swept the rest of the world away. He was a man after his, after God's heart. He was a man of righteousness, the most humble man on the face of the earth. He preached. He was a preacher of righteousness. He preached. He told them. There was only a few that were saved. I believe God doesn't want that same thing to happen in this age. I think he wants to do such a move in his people that uh, we're going to see many souls come to know Jesus. However... It's my Bible there. Could you pass me my Bible? We must keep in context all Scripture. We can't assume that God's going to save the whole earth because he's not. And we must not assume that everyone that gets saved during the revival will stay saved either because the revival is just going to bring in the harvest, if you know what I mean. Because Jesus says the harvest is the end of the age. Who knows that scripture? The harvest is at the end of the age. So the great harvest, the greatest revival in the history of men is about to happen. Matthew 24, verses 9, says this. If you want to grab it, go for it. And this is Jesus talking about the end of the age. So Matthew 24, 9 to 10, it says this, and I'm reading it so that we can understand it. Actually, let's go back to verse 7. No, even further back. Verse 6. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumours of wars. Have we heard of wars and rumours of wars? Yeah, all the time. All the time. All the time. But see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Have we not seen that? The 20th century was the most warring century in history, or large on a large scale. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. We're seeing huge amounts of that, huge. All these are the beginning of the birth pains, but the birth pains, that means it's... When a woman gets birth pains, that means that the baby's not very far away. Is that right, Ben? But the earth, when you see a woman going through labor and you see the pains hit her, she screams. It is painful. It's like, it's, it's like I, I wouldn't even know how to describe it because it didn't have it happen to me. But 
Is it like a knife getting thrust in your belly or something, or how would you describe it? Who's had a cramp in their legs? Yeah, you've had your calf muscle cramp up, and it's, oh, it's painful, it's painful. You imagine that in your belly, you know? So when it comes on, it's like the most severe thing that can take place. And as it gets along, it gets worse and worse until the baby, and then the baby's got to come out. It's like getting a, you know, a, a pumpkin out of a golf hole, sort of, golf, golf ball hole sort of thing. It's like, you know, so that's even, there's more pain there. So when this is happening, I don't know how graphic that was. Let's see. Right, so these are the beginnings of the birth pain. So when the birth pains begin, so the earth is going to be going through severe cramps and pain, and it's going to affect the inhabitants that are living on the earth. It's going to make us feel like it's going to be even a spiritual thing as well. There's going to be this feeling like something's dreadfully wrong. The world is going bad. That's why people drink a lot or take drugs because they're desperately trying to find a way of cutting off from all of that stuff. Right? And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will keep us in perspective. He'll keep us balanced. He'll keep joy in our spirit even in the face of persecution and suffering. James said, consider a pure joy, a pure joy, my friends, when you face these trials of many kinds. He said to consider a pure joy. You know, we're a long way from that. We've got a long way to go before we can consider sufferings of the kind that we're going to confront. Pure joy. You know? Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. Thanks, Jesus, for the warning. Are you ready? Are you ready? Like, seriously, are you ready? If some officials busted into this room right now and rounded us up, are you ready now? Be honest, yeah. Vina was honest. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But I know some men of old, men of the past, were so ready, they desired it with all their heart. They desired to suffer for the name of Jesus. And uh, they were the most glorious martyrs. Glorious. The crowds that watched them came to believe in Jesus because of the way they were martyred. We've got a long way to go to get our, our Christianity to that level where we can be like these men of old. And that is what God's calling us to now. We have to be transformed and changed and return to the way the original apostles and, uh, and disciples of Jesus were. That's the sort of men we're meant to be and women we're meant to be. Anything less than that, if we're not aiming for anything that great, anything less than that, and we're going to always fail Jesus. Because even those men, glorious men and women of God back then, felt that they failed Jesus because they felt they were so far from where they could be. So we've got to strive to live that level. And at that time, and, oh, sorry, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me, and as I said in one of my sermons way before, are you ready to be hated by all men? Are you prepared for your families to turn their back on you? Are you prepared for your closest friends to turn their back on you and hate your guts? 
Are you prepared for that? Because if you're not, then we don't have the Christianity the Bible talks about. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Why? All men will hate me because of me. People say, I don't want to be hated. So they turn their backs on Jesus. They walk the other way. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be put in prison. They don't want to be flogged. They don't want to lose their head. They would rather live a few more measly years on earth and die of a natural disaster or something because there's going to be so many coming than actually live for Jesus. And, of course, it says that many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Are we not seeing that now? And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And you know what? The love in the church, in many respects, has grown very cold. I'm always praying, God, why am I so cold? Warm my heart up, Lord. Why don't I weep for my family who don't believe? Why can I not even get one tear? I'm just praying to the Lord, just give me one tear, man. One tear, God, that that I can cry for souls going to hell. When was the last time you cried for someone you know who's going to hell? When was the last time the reality of hell really hit you in the face and brought tears to your eyes? I read the quote again. William Booth said that to all his army officers that he would pray that the final bit of their training would be to hang their officers for 24 hours over the pit of hell. For 24 hours, just hang there and look at the souls in hell and what they're going through. And they would come back so fired up, literally, that they would turn the world upside down. If you could get a revelation of the reality of hell, you could not be the same Christian again. We could not live the same life again. We will live with such passion, with such burden, such love for souls. We would be weeping every day for the souls of men. And you know what? When God sees tears genuine tears in his people, he he responds. Did not our Lord weep? Did he? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You know, and he's calling us to weep. He's calling us to have that sort of heart, his heart. And why? Because Lazarus was dead in the grave. And it burdened him to know that death had grabbed someone he loved. He raised him from the dead, but that Lazarus had to die again, but then live for eternity. We'll only experience death once if you're a true believer. The second death has no hold on you. Amen? All right. I haven't got very far in the sermon, but Lord, I thank you for this time now, and I thank you that you've uh, spoken through me, and I just pray that you're... Uh, this message will go far and wide and that you will really grab us and change us and transform us deep within. Lord, we need to be wrenched and changed and and, uh, something change in us radically to prepare the way for what is coming. Lord, we know you're coming and, and Lord, you're calling your John the Baptist to rise up and prepare the way for your second coming. And Lord, it's the greatest honour to be here at this time that you chose us and not someone else, but us 
to be here at this time, to hear these messages, to get changed, to get transformed, to pray and to believe that, Lord, we can prepare the way for masses of souls to come to know you. And Lord, let this be the burden of our heart. May our hearts cry with this burden that we won't be able to rest under it. Let not one of us here rest under this burden, Lord Jesus. We so desperately need you. We so desperately need your Holy Spirit to move us and uh, reach the lost. There's so many lost, Lord. There's so many lost. And if we are lost in our own heart, Lord, change us and transform us so that we would become true Christians, living for you, walking in righteousness and holiness. Pray this in your wonderful name. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series uncovering religion, truth, judgment, and eternity, apologetics 101, critical doctrine, and end times. Feel free to check them out. 